Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from Open Store at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. What's up, DTC pod? Today, uh, we have the honor of being joined by Brian Sugar, who is the founder of Pop Sugar. He's also the um, co-founder and chairperson of Novel Commerce. And he is the founding partner of Sugar Capital. So, uh, Brian, why don't you kick us off? And Pop you, Sugar. Oh, and Pop Sugar. Um, so, <laughs> Brian, why don't you? Yeah, Brian, you've done a ton, um, and we're really excited to have you on the pod today, just because I think you've spent so long in this space, not only on the um, the side, the investor side, but as well as like the founder side, um, and you're really bridging the gap between media, between enablement companies, between D2C and really popular consumer brands. So you've kind of seen it all uh, over your career. So we're really, really excited to have you. So why don't you kick us off and tell us a little bit um, about yourself, where you got started and what you're what you're really focused on and some of the projects you're working on today. Okay, um, let's see. It all started um, when I dropped out of college to start my first internet company in 1994. Okay. Um, my uh, my vision was that all mail order catalogs would eventually be online and selling stuff. Uh, but when I dropped out to start that company, I quickly realized that not enough people were online yet. And the only way you could get online was through AOL or your campus or, you know, at your company. So I launched a company called Neptune, which was a dial-up ISP in the Washington, D.C. area. Ran that for about two years and then sold it. But during nights and weekends, I would make websites, burn them on the CD-ROMs, and send them out to Land's End, J. Crew, Eddie Bauer, like all the older mail order catalogs. I get a call in October of 1996 um, from a gentleman by the name of Arthur Senator, and he said, I love the design that you have on your, can I meet you? So I went up to New York, met Arthur on a Thursday, took a job at J. Crew on Sunday, and I was the managing editor of jcrew.com, and at the time, J.Crew had like an order system on the internet where you could type in from the catalog the item number and then order it through that. So it was kind of replacing the phone. My job was to actually make the visual experience of the first catalog. So we launched that in June of 1997. I stayed uh, for a bunch of years, left um, in the end of December of 99. I got My wife and I got married in September. And on the honeymoon in 99, I get a call from uh, somebody at SoftBank saying that they're doing a new startup called Blue Light. Okay, I don't know if any of your audience remembers that, but Blue Light was Kmart, Martha Stewart, and Yahoo that got together where it was a free ISP, and I had my Neptune experience, and then the homepage was Blue Light, which was Kmart's online presence. Um, so I was chief web officer of Blue Light, which was a weird title at the time and still is. Um, did that for about 18 months, but then 
kind of the world blew up with 9-11, the dot-com bust. Kmart actually went bankrupt, weren't really interested in moving to Detroit, which they were thinking about doing. So I left that and I did some other e-commerce 1.0 projects from Martha Stewart to Estee Lauder Gloss.com and um, ultimately got a little bit bored in e-commerce. And I've always been an entrepreneur, so I was thinking about what was next. And I got deeply passionate about um, IPTV. So I started a company in uh, end of 2001 uh, where we had a, a, a client which was called the Sugar Cube. And then we had a back-end management system so you could do on-demand services to your TV. Um, and then ultimately sold that to a company called Two Wire. And then we sold Two Wire to AT&T. And a lot of that um, software that we built became part of Uverse, which is um, AT&T's service today. Um, in 2005, my wife started blogging as a hobby, Pop Sugar, and I've always been a software engineer, and I wanted to learn about WordPress and analytics and content and all of that. So I, I, we were just doing it as a side hobby. My wife was working at Goodby Silverstein and Partners as an ad executive, and I'll tell you, man, Pop Sugar in that first year took off faster than anything I'd ever seen. And I was part of like J. Crew and I'd seen Martha Stewart and Estee, like all these great brands. And it was absolutely amazing. And a year later, after we closed the deal with um, AT&T, I decided to leave and join my wife and actually start a business. So we started in April of 2006 um, with a couple of other founders. One of our founders was Arthur, the gentleman that worked that um, whose family owned J. Crew at the time that hired me back in 1996. In 2006, he he was part of uh, Pop Sugar, um, which was great. Um, we raised our Series A financing in October of 2006 from Michael Moritz at Sequoia Capital, and we were sort of off to the races. Um, the following year, we took an investment from NBC from a, from a strategic because they wanted to run our advertising. Um, in that year, we also bought a company, a small startup called ShopStyle, which was a fashion search engine. Um, and then fast forward, we launched many extensions to the brand. We launched a clothing line at Kohl's. We did a beauty a beauty line that you could get at Ulta. Uh, we did a massive um, uh, two-day event in New York City called Pop Sugar Playground. Um, we have a fitness line with Target. All sorts of great stuff that we learned that we learned a ton from. In 2017, we sold ShopStyle to Rakuten, and in 2019, we merged Pop Sugar with Group Nine Media. And then this past year, we merged uh, Pop Sugar, Group Nine Media, and Vox Media, making the largest private digital media company. So that was a great experience. Um, but for like the last ten or twelve years, I've been doing angel investing, both for myself and as part of the not so secretive Sequoia Scout program, which was secret for the first bunch of years. Learned a ton from that. Really great network. Um, and then I decided to actually launch my fund. Uh, launched the fund with three other partners. My wife. Um, Krista, who was also a founder of Pop Sugar, and then Will Hawthorne, who was an investment banker for many years, where I used Will to actually sell Pop Sugar, and then he did the deal with um, Vox Media. We launched Sugar Capital in September of 2020. Fund One was a $25 million fund that's fully deployed in about 33 companies. Um, and then uh, we started. We launched Fund Two in May of this year. It's a $75 million fund. We've raised 25 of it, so we have you know, two thirds left, but I don't think that'll be an issue um, as as we roll out. And um, we've made three investments out of fund two. We invest in the future of commerce. We invest in consumer brands and we invest in, um, you know, e-commerce enablement companies. And it all stems from two investments that I did prior to Sugar Capital. 
The first one on the consumer side in 2010, I was first money in at Everlane, an apparel company. I'm still on the board of that company. And then um, I was instrumental in bringing Afterpay, the buy now, pay later company out of Australia into the US. So Everlane represents the consumer brands that we invest in and Afterpay represents the software enablement companies that we invest in. Um, and that's, that's my quick 25 year history. And then what about, last thing we need to hear about is what about Novel? So right now you're the, the chairperson of that and one of the founders of that. I think you may have left that out um, and it, that's a really exciting project as well. Um, yes, uh, you know, I, I, I leave that, uh, yes, I did leave it out. I should, I should put that in, but I was worried about the time. Um, so Novel was an idea. Um, so I met Roger, the CEO and founder of, of a Novel about a year, a little over a year ago now when he was running Smarter. Um, and I, I loved him and what he was doing. Um, and ultimately, when we looked at actually investing, there were some cap table issues um, that prohibited some you know, outside capital. Ultimately, we didn't invest. And ultimately, Roger left that. Um, and he was playing around with a whole bunch of di different ideas. There was a partner at Costanoa Ventures named John Cowgill, who I know really well. I've done a bunch of deals with him. John said, hey, have you caught up with Roger in a while? And I said, it's, it was... It'd been like two months and I hadn't. He's like, you should really talk to him. So we spoke and he had like, you know, three or four ideas that he was sort of playing around with. They didn't really get like me super excited. And one time he was like, hey, do you have an idea? And I was like, well, actually I do. And I was like, you know, when I was part of Group 9, we had this brand called the Dodo, which is a very large animal uh, social brand. And this was like, you know, kind of mid, like 2019-ish. Um, or excuse me, mid-2020 or early 2020. And I was thinking about what could we do with the blockchain and the Dodo and NFTs. And I was like, oh, we could teach people about scarcity. We could do something with the wild, wild, the worldwide, whatever, federation, the, 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 you know, and do a bunch of collectibles around endangered species, sell them and have a whole bunch of benefits associated with buying that NFT. And I turned to my engineers at Group 9 who were awesome content management people but didn't know much about the blockchain. And it was like deprioritized for difficulty. Anyway, so I pitched the idea to, not, to, to Roger. I was like, what if we build on top of Shopify where brands can sell NFTs that have utility on the store itself, um, where you can do perpetual discounts, you can do you know, um, product gating, you can do all sorts of cool token-based gating things based on NFT ownership. And he sort of played with the idea for a couple of weeks and he's like, I think this could be big and this would be great. He had a co-founder who was working with Anna and um, John at Casanova and me at Sugar Capital. We both put in the pre-seed financing. Um, and then we raised our seed financing from um, Ben Lear, from Lear Hippo and Gary Vaynerchuk. Um, I know Ben because ben, ben, ben was the CEO of Group 9 where we merged Pop Sugar into. And Gary V obviously has a huge uh, he has VaynerMedia, which is also a very big digital media company. So we all knew each other. And um, we closed that round of financing like the first week of January of this year. And we've been sort of off to the races. And I would say that out of all the companies in the portfolio, you know, I spend 
a, an amazing amount of time with Roger and, and, and the rest of the team. Like I was on the phone for an hour and a half yesterday with their, with Akil who runs product. And I was also on the phone with him this morning, just talking about, you know, different directions that we can go. Like, it, you know, could novel be gating as a service API for all new web three companies? Do we go deep in, you know, web three loyalty? Do we do an influencer? Like there's all these different things that we can do. Um, you know, with the technology that we've built. So it's a pretty exciting time at Novel. No, absolutely. And, th and that's super exciting. And the one question that I have about Novel and how you're thinking about it, I think what's really cool is there's so many opportunities there that all have been kind of, that haven't been tapped into yet and haven't been tapped into by like really strong operators as well. Um, so as you think about it, um, just maybe a little bit for, for some context for our audience, what is the overlap between Web3 and consumer brands uh, that gave you so much conviction to uh, build Novel? So, you know, as many people have spoken about, you know, Web1 was about read only, Web2 was about read write, where you, now you can post on social networks, and Web3's, you know, all about ownership. And to me, ownership from a brand really is about super fans and loyalty, right? Like, what can you do with your super fans? So there's all sorts of things that we gate at Novel. We gate access. So access to events, access to a Discord, access to just, you know, doing product development. Like, you know, we've talked a bunch with the Rothy's folks. Like, maybe they take their super fans that own you know, and their NFT and put five colors in front of them and have the community vote on what's the color that they're going to want to offer, right? So that's really access. Then there's all sorts of like, the more you spend, the more you earn. So, you know, thinking about like, could you charge, you know, $5 a month to get a perpetual discount or expedited shipping, like all sorts of things that brands can use the token as a mechanism to reward their super fans around loyalty and retention. And everything that's going on now with brands is like brands can't acquire customers efficiently through the paid channels like they used to in the past. Brands need to focus on increasing conversion rate, increasing average order, lowering abandonment, dealing with the traffic that they have now. Like 97% of the people that come to your site don't buy. There's like plenty of opportunities to do things there. And I think Novel gives the tools to the brands to help enhance that. I mean, and brand loyalty too, right? Like brand loyalty is such a big challenge for for a lot of brands Um, just because the 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 barriers to entry in DDC, um, you know, have gone down. And so there's all these companies um, between specific niches or industries where um, it's really easy now for consumers, I guess, to jump from brand to brand. And this could sort of help a lot of, you know, consumers build a relationship with the brand, which will ultimately lead to, you know, better brand loyalty. Totally. Like for the benefit really, of the consumer too, not just for the benefit of the brand selfishly, a, you know, a really great example of, of using tokens for a membership or loyalty program is the wine industry, okay? Like if you think about it, you you know, you come out to wine country and you sign up for the list, you have to wait x number of years to get on like the like, you know, on the scribe winery list because everybody wants to be on it. Once you get on it, you're only like tier 1. You have to buy a bunch of wine and go up the tiers. And then maybe after 2 or 3 years, you're like, "You know what? I have enough scribe wine." I want to sell my NFT, my membership. And you know what? Because that membership has like platinum level experience, people will pay up for that in the secondary market. So I think the, you know, industries like that 
where there's membership and you earn more as you spend more, but then maybe over time you want to pause, you could actually sell the value of the membership, that ownership that, that you've created with the brand. Yeah, I mean, even in golf, right? Like, I, I lived in Austin. I live in Miami. There's eight-year wait list um, in, in uh, what's it called? In Austin, it's like Spanish Oaks um, and the Austin Country Club. They're like eight-year wait list, and, you know, and they're at 100 grand. Um, so, and there's people that have them that, like, you know, that somebody might have inherited from somebody that passed away or, like, they don't want to be there anymore. Um, so, yeah, that's a, a, a really interesting play there. Yeah, I like the golf example. And I think the other thing is just when just by positioning yourself as thinking like, okay, there's this layer between the customers and the brands and we're going to serve as like the gate between helping these brands tap into all those different things that the customers may find valuable. I think that's a really strong thesis to to build around. Right. Um, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. You know, go for it. No, like a, a great example is, you know, we did a, we did a NFT project that's live now with liquid death. Okay. Liquid death is an awesome, you know, Peter's company, if you know, him, um, they, they've done an incredible job. So now they have like, um, liquid death gated merchandise. So if you have the NFT, you can actually buy the t-shirt or the hat or what have you. And it's all gated by novels technology. So it's a, a you know, a simple, but awesome example of the super fans that want that type of merch. And then also just in terms of like the whole industry of these consumer brands, right? Like they're building on Shopify, they're trying to figure out all these different plugins and like they don't have a way to tap in and manage those different types of programs. They don't have a, a technical solution to gate, to be able to like issue NFTs, to be able to pull any of this off. So for all of those different brands, this becomes an entire new channel of customer engagement, which if the thesis is okay, we're, we're gone are the days of like just cheap Facebook ads and cheap customer acquisition. And to win, you need to be able to like build into your fans and build into your loyalty. You guys are right there as a utility layer for all these consumer brands to tap into and maximize their own organic sort of growth and retention. That's why one of my daughters, my, my youngest daughter, I have three daughters, but my youngest daughter and I had COVID together, you know, Christmas time last year. And we made this, we made this piece of art, if you can see it. Love it. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so. I, I do I do have a question, Brian, in terms of like the operational um I guess like evolution throughout your career. I was just really impressed of like how many things you sort of been able to like, you know, um have your hands on. And so there was something interesting when you explained your your career now that it was like, well, you sort of started out with like the entrepreneur bug of like burning CDs, sending it, etc. But then you went to work as like editor for J. Crew. Um, how did that like career choice go? And you stay there because typically when people have the entrepreneur bug, like they just go and like try to build stuff. And how did working there like help you on your second time around or or whenever you went to, to build the next thing? Because I asked that question because I have, have always been an entrepreneur and haven't had that insight of like working at an established or big company. So I'm curious, like how that decision came around and how it impacted well, you know, at jQuery at the time, there was no employees of that were working on the website. There was really Arthur, and he had an outside consultant, and he gained inter, you know, internal consensus that this is something they should test. I mean, there was definitely people at jQuery that didn't believe we would be able to sell any significant business online. Like people were like, "Is it safe to use your credit card?" Like there was a lot of issues that that I had to deal with as like an entrepreneur inside a company. I always viewed and was always treated 
Like the the found the the family that used to own J. Crew, the Senator family, they were very entrepreneurial themselves. And I learned a lot. Like they they just like enhanced my entrepreneurial. It was like, hey, like whatever I needed, whatever I needed to get done, they just encouraged me. Go talk to the CFO, go talk to the head of retail. Like Dave DiMattei, a famous, famous retailer, probably retired now. I haven't spoken to him in a while. He ran J. Crew Retail. Okay. And I remember in the fall of 1998, he's like, I believe in the internet. I'm, I'm going to make the entire back to school campaign around jcrew.com. So we had t-shirts and hats and all sorts of merch that had jcrew.com on it. And like jcrew itself at the time, this was before Mickey and, and TPG and all that. It was very entrepreneurial. So I, you know, it was, it was a great place with a, a really nice safety net of a nice salary and, you know, insurance, you know, all the things that maybe you don't have as a startup, like a startup founder that I've had through the Here's years, the but it, it didn't feel like I was working like at a corporation, you know, like, you know, my dad worked for 25 years at AT&T. Um, you know, he started off at Bell Labs, you know, in 71, I think it was, and worked for 25 years. And every time he had the opportunity to tell me, he is like, do not work for a big company. Start your own company all the time. And he was the number one proponent of me leaving school to start my first internet company. I mean, he he lent me the money of my tuition to actually do it. So, um, you know, so J. Crew, it was great. And, and, and I got to learn so much. I sat right where they made the catalog. So all my friends were the graphic designers. So I learned photography. I learned typography. I learned copy. I learned all the things that you knew needed to do to make a catalog, which are the exact same things that you need to make a website. And then I learned all the tricks of the web. You know, there wasn't even Google yet. Okay. So there wasn't like SEO or any of that kind of stuff. Like I remember we did a big deal with Excite. Who remembers Excite? Okay. And like we had to create banner ads. So I made banner ads. It was really cool. It was like, like the banner was a 728 by 90. I don't even know if they're like used anymore. And it's like, it was sand and it had jcrew.com written on it. And then I animated flip-flops walking on the banner. And it was like, uh, you know, it got in a crazy click-through weight. And like, so anyway, I, I got to learn every single aspect of running a D2C brand in from 96 to 2000. And it was like the most rewarding experience, you know, of my like, you know, first 25 years of life. I think that's a really good perspective in terms of saying like you were at the forefront of e-commerce as we know it today. Like this is this is way before, um, you know, anything is even even remotely similar to what we have now. But those experiences in terms of like building and being hands on and being able to learn all the different inputs across these different sectors all add up to what you're able to do today. So why don't we go move on a little bit past J. Crew and I want to talk a little bit more about um, Pop Sugar, the the blog that you started with with your wife, because media is that's an entire different beast to just you know a catalog. It's a totally different thing. The way you think about content, the way you monetize, the way you get traffic. Um, it's it's just a little bit different. So why don't you talk us a little bit about the founding story behind that and what the like learnings and and growth of the company was like in the early days. So, um, you know, like I said, it was really a hobby of my wife's and she just started blogging about things she liked to watch, things she liked to read, just all, you know, celebrity stuff, like all sorts of things that she was interested from a pop culture perspective. And, 
you know, and she would always tell this story, which is, you know, she would always go to her favorite magazine websites and there'd be a homepage with like headlines on it. And then later that afternoon, you'd go back to the homepage and it would be exactly the same. So what did the magazine just teach you? You don't need to come multiple times a day, right? So the blog format made like, like our initial tagline for Pop Sugar was insanely addictive because the amount of times that people would come back every day to get their fix after a meeting, after lunch was so huge. It was like, you know, it was, it was remarkable. But like being a D to C person, okay, I didn't believe at the time in like brand marketing. Like why would you want to buy ads on a media site when I can do performance stuff like we were doing with Excite and some other folks, right? And I always believed that if you built a really big audience, you could have all these different revenue streams around it, a la Disney. Like what's going to be our theme parks? What's going to be our toy line? What's going to be this and what's going to be that? So we laid out a like no joke, like a 25 year outlook on all the things that we do if we got big enough. You know, it was like, we could definitely get into various different merchandising lines. We can get into events. We could get into like, what can we do from content to commerce? And the shop style acquisition that we did a year into the journey was like absolutely amazing. I mean, it was like, it was really was a cash cow for us at the time. Um, you know, it was crawlers and data feeds of all the popular brands and retailers in one place. You could search for red dress. Google used to love it. You would search for little black dress. There was shop style. We'd send you on your way. And it was really great. Then we created all these tools for the editors when they wrote articles and they're talking about the must buy shoes that season. All the links flowed through shop style. So we had all of that. So it was like, and a really, really incredible business up until 2015. And then in 2015, ShopStyle went to the Google doghouse. And, and it was because Google decided it didn't like marketplaces that were thin, that didn't actually do the transaction, right? So then we started to go down the path of building, you know, one-click checkout on top of Shopify, uh, excuse me, on top of um, ShopStyle and so on and so forth. But then ultimately Rakuten came around and decided that they wanted to buy it to put it part of Ebates and some of the things that they were doing. So we did that. Um, and then, um, you know, Pop Sugar was then started really rocking from 2015 all the way to 2019. The, we, the last time we raised money at Pop Sugar was in 2011. So from 2011 all the way through 2019, we were running the business off the money that we were making. So we didn't have the capital issues that some digital media companies had. However, you know, in 2017 and 2018, I started really thinking about, you know, I changed my title to chief EBITDA officer instead of being chief executive officer. And um, Digiday did a fun little post on it, which was great. And I then started thinking about the future of digital media. And it was all about scale. And it was all about consolidation. And were there synergies when you put two big brands together? Do, do you only need one tech platform? Do you only need one sales organization? So ultimately, Ben and I spoke and we put the companies together um, and then we did the same play with Jim over at Vox. And now we have an extremely large one digital media company that I think, you know, is going to be around forever. So, Brian, I find that very interesting because I think like the alternative to that, as you mentioned, like if you have the infrastructure, you could have also just said, hey, we already have like, first of all, we have the 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 sensor for like what's it what's cool um pop sugar unlock that and then you already have the infrastructure of 
the writers, the publishing um, systems and everything. So the alternative could have been, why don't we just spin up a bunch, like a conglomerate of like all these media sites um, and just take a lot of the real estate in the internet. Um, but instead you saw, saw sort of this like Disney approach of different verticals as a bigger monetization opportunity because you probably already just had so much of the real estate with Pop Sugar. Well, it's funny for like the first four or five years, we were all separate verticals. So Pop Sugar was the pop culture one. We had Fit Sugar, which was the fitness. We had Fab Sugar was fashion. We had um, Bella Sugar was beauty. We had like 12 verticals. And I see. we got big enough where we hired a CMO and the CMO is like, it's too hard to market all these things. Let's put it all under Pop Sugar and be more like, you know, it's Pop Sugar Fitness and Pop Sugar Fashion. And that really propelled our advertising business. That like really made it easy. And, and you know, and we just saw an acceleration of ad sales from that simple change in communicating who we were to our customers, which are different than our readers. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. And then you spoke about social commerce, you know, in, in the days of like Google shopping coming in, um, social commerce is something that is being pushed pretty hard. It's changing with platforms like Depop, um, PopShop Live, etc. I'm curious, like how you see the current state of social commerce or like, what do you think is going to be the thing that, that works the most in, in social commerce right now, just compared to what you were able to see during that era? I think it's been pathetic. I just, I mean, it's just like, there's, you know, there, there isn't anyone denting the universe on social commerce. I mean, I when agree. you even look at, if you look at Pinterest, which was kind of on the forefront of scale, I think they finally realized that at that scale, they're going to make more money from advertising than actually taking a cut of the transaction on Pinterest. And I think, you know, Instagram shopping is sort of like, meh, like, it's like, meh, you know, it's okay, you know, and I, you know, I'm very intrigued by the live, the, the live platforms, obviously in Asia, it's a much bigger thing than here. Um, but I'm interested in like, there's, there's, there's like, you know, you come from Instagram or TikTok or whatever, and you land on a website. Okay. And these websites look exactly the same as they did from 2012. Right. And I think that there's an opportunity on the actual websites themselves to make them feel more social, more like the places that they came from. And there's a couple companies I'm looking at in that space. And I think the, that's some unique opportunity where the, the, the commerce happens and it looks social because maybe it's vertical video, but maybe that vertical video is on the website itself and not, you know, when you're doom scrolling, because, you know, you really have the issue of intent when you're on TikTok and you're doing your thing between whatever, your intent isn't really to buy something. Sometimes you can get hooked and sure you'll buy something. We all have the impulsive buys that we do. But ultimately, when you're in your shopping mode, you're in your shopping mode. So why not make it inside out and make it so that when you go to a website, there's more, it feels more like the environments of TikTok or Reels or whatever other copycat thing is out there. Yeah, it's about the experience. It's like, it reminds you like Pinduoduo was able to crack it big in, in China because they created the, the community group 
purchasing experience. Then they went and like partner with the suppliers, manufacturers, etc. So like, it's not like go ahead and translate that exact experience here because there might be cultural barriers that like, or whatever that just don't allow that to work here. But it's like, well, the principle though, it's just change the experience. And that might be like what hits home. Yeah. Like, you know, I met with a company out of Israel um, called Humans, which is a massive, massive um, influencer marketing commerce company. And they make it so easy for you as an influencer to set up your own store and sell stuff through it. You know, I, I always had that vision and I was going to invest in that area, but that company was too far along from where we do our investments. So it was very impressive. Brian, so... Other than, um, you know, kind of what we're seeing in the current state of social commerce, do you think based on like what you're seeing, the companies that are coming along, do you think it's something that is going to take like just the right product and the, to, to solve? Or do you think it's, it's something that's more cultural, like on the intent side that you were, you were kind of talking about where maybe like Americans just, you know, they want to shop the way they shop or is it, is it something that can be solved with the right product? I don't think shopping is social by human nature. Like, you know, like I think people pride themselves on them finding and discovering things at good prices, at great brands. Like they want to be the person that sort of is wearing it out there first. And then their friends ask them, it's not like you want to go shopping with your friend, you know, and like find the same thing. And then what are you going to do? Both wear the same dress. Like, it's like, I just think inherently shopping maybe isn't social. And we think about how kids, when I was a kid, we would go to malls and hang out. But that was just a place where we could be together. And it's like, we can be together online now. So we don't have to do it on the backdrop of shopping. We just do it on the backdrop of, you know, TikTok or, or our phone. So it's kind of, you know, just inherently, I just don't think shopping is social. Yeah, I guess it's more individual. It's a way to express your individuality and uh, and people have different needs to buy things at different times, different budgets. And so to like put all those things together and expect it uh, at the right social, like let's all buy this stuff together. Maybe that that could be a big inhibitor. I, I, I really like that. Um, the next question I have, Brian, in terms of moving a little bit away from social commerce and more into the stuff that you guys have done in investor, as an investor, I think what's really unique, you have the experience as an operator, you've made investments in not only the enablement layer, which obviously makes sense because these can be massive venture scale businesses, but you guys have also done a lot of great investments in um, in consumer brands and D2C brands themselves, right? So my question for you about when you invest in some of these like very popular direct-to-consumer brands, like you had mentioned, like the Everlay, and I know you guys have done Caraway and Feastables and all these other sort of like great consumer brands. What what does it take for you? Uh, what gets you excited about investing in uh, consumer brands? A lot, a lot, a lot of things that we look for, um, and in no in no particular order. Um, so the first thing is a lot of times we look for a founding pair. Okay. We look for a left brain and we look for a right brain and like Everlane had two founders. They had that, um, cake, which is another company that we're involved with has that also. There's a lot of examples of companies in our portfolio where they have the salesy marketing brand storyteller tied together with a merchandising planning financial person that worked together to create the business and that's just of the 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 team dna we've just learned that pattern having those two types of people together is very important 
Um, the next thing is, is when we sit down and meet with a company, it's like, you know, because of our roots in pop sugar, we are storytellers. Like we know how to build a brand without spending money on it. I want to make sure that the founding team understands that and they do that. So like one question we ask, it's like, how much money, what percentage of revenue do you spend on marketing, on paid marketing? And if that number is like 20 or 25% or greater, it's just not for us. Like we want a, a scaled D to C brand to be 12% or less. Okay. If you're spending more of that on paid marketing, you have a drug habit. You are addicted to the high of spending money to make money. And it just won't last because your tolerance will just increase and you'll never be able to go to rehab and get off that drug. So spend the money on content creators and content studios and build like own the house that your audience is in. Don't rent the house. And that is like, you know, very, very critical to us. The other thing that we've learned through, you know, we're almost two years in is like, it takes a long time to build a brand. So you have to be patient. It's not, I mean, Feastables is definitely an overnight success, but that's because of Mr. Beast, right? Like Caraway has taken time. Cake has taken time. Like Judy, like they all take two or three years to really take flight. So you need to be patient with the founders. You need to, you know, the other thing that I try to do because of my background is I try to build a relationship with the founder that is completely transparent. And I want to be your first call when you have challenges that you want to talk about. Like, I don't want you to be scared or like don't want to share stuff because you're worried that I'm like going to be upset about the investment. Like, I don't want to, I want you like, you know, a lot of people tell me and it makes me feel really good. It's like, they're like, you know, whenever I call you, I get off the phone feeling better about myself and my business. That's my job. There are many investors that I know out there that sell, that send stress-inducing text messages, like simply a URL to a competitor. Have you seen this? And it's like, how is that helpful? Like, that's not helpful. Don't bother the founders. Leave them alone. They have enough stress already. Be there to be their coach, their therapist, their mentor, their divorce lawyer. Whatever they need, personally or in business, be there for them. And that way, you can get to the truth of, like, the challenges and solve them through diversity of thought. Spoken like a true operator yourself in the past. So I love that. Um, would you say those criteria are the same for e-commerce enablement tech companies that you work for? Because, you know, I think the DDC go to market is so different than than what it might be for some of these tech SaaS or marketplaces in, in the tech enablement. So how do you view those differently? Because you guys do invest in those, right? Yes. I mean, you know, about three quarters of our capital is invested in the technology side and about a quarter is invested on the brand side and it's done by design. Okay. It, you know, investing in e-commerce enablement companies and brands is very competitive. So as, as an investor, we need to be differentiated. So yes, we have differentiation because we are operators. We've had successful businesses that people know about and look up to. So we get a check mark on that. But one of our other differentiators is when we're talking to brands, we're so deep on the technology front that when they're like, hey, I need help with personalization or I need help with like audience develop, like anything that they're thinking about, we pretty much know the ecosystem. We can help them make technology choices. Okay. On the technology side, 
most of the technology, like the product people that are running those companies maybe aren't the best storytellers. So we help a lot with like go to market and strategy, who to talk to, how do you change the message if you're talking to the CMO versus the CTO? Like we know all of that stuff. So we work, we spend a lot of time crafting, you know, the email that we send out, the LinkedIn post, like all the things that we're doing to get business. The other thing that's super important is like, when I'm like, you know, auditioning to be an investor in a an, an enablement company, I can quickly do a two-way diligence. I can send your company, your technology company, to Everlane, Starface, Cake, Caraway, and be like, hey guys, what do you guys think of this? Would you like to try it? And like, then they try it and they report back, I love it, you know, we're gonna use it. Or, eh, we use this, you know, so it's like, a, a, it's a great way to get them customers and it's great for us to get diligence on the technology. So it's worked really well in this kind of Koretsu as we see it. Yeah, and I think one thing that's unique about you guys is you're so well uh, positioned within commerce as investors, right? It seems like a lot of funds, they have big trends they like to invest in and they'll kind of, they're all, you know, they'll have a bunch of different theses that aren't necessarily re really related, but you guys seem to be very pinpointed and say, no, 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 we, we know the types of consumer brands we're investing in. We're going to be able to learn from them as operating partners. We know the kind of enablement tools we're going to be investing in. And then you have a very clear um, thesis for the fund and it doesn't get too convoluted with every, you know, deal that comes your way with which you're in totally different sectors. Yeah, no, it that comes back from feedback that I got in the early days of Pop Sugar, which was a potential investor said to me, you're a jack of all trades, master of none. And I was like, fuck, that really hit home. I was like, wow, that means I don't have focus and all this kind of stuff. And now with Sugar Capital, I would say we we have a vertical that we are focused on. So we are not you know, we are not master of none. We are master of the future of commerce. And that's what we invest in. So when you come to us with like, you know, some, you know, travel thing or some, you know, like, like new social network or like, we just don't do that. Like we just invest in making commerce better from a consumer brand perspective and from a technology perspective. So it's super, you know, it's super easy for us to, you know, decide whether or not we're going to make time for the company or, or not waste their time. So I know we're, you know, we're coming towards the end, but I'm going to take an opportunity here to to ask on that. So, um, you know, as you're as you were told, like you're a jack of all trade, master of none. Um, how how did you go through that self-discovery process, I guess, to ask yourself the question, of, OK, what is it that I'm really good at? What are the things that I need to focus on? What am I a master of? And that, then like so I can know what I can delegate and like, you know, where is my you know, 80, 20, like 20% of my time, that's going to bring, you know, 80% of value or more to whether it's the companies I'm building or portfolio companies. Like what, what was that journey like? Well, it just came down to like analyzing the idea that is a business and deciding like in X amount of time, can it be like X, Y big? Like, you know, so we went through all the things that we're working on at the time of Pop Sugar. And if we really didn't believe that they could be like $25 million businesses within five years, it was like, well, then why are we working on it? Let's let's focus power. Uh, our, our CTO would always say focus power. Um, 
at Pop Sugar. And that became a mantra from us from like 2012 on. It was just focus power on what we're good at and build real businesses, not like fun hackathon projects that we make live and we're like, oh, here it is, you know. So so that that's what's happened. And in the fund, one of the learnings we we've we've taken with that from fund one to two is in fund one, we dabbled a little bit in doing series A investments and we are not doing any series A investments ongoing. We are only pre-seed and seed. We write one to $2 million checks for significant, you know, right around 10% ownership early. It's like once you're a series A company, the value that we provide isn't as great. Therefore we don't have that much of an impact. Um, We also decided that we're not going to sprinkle like, $250,000 or $500,000 checks around. If we believe in a company, we're going to be investing that one to two. Like we want to have, you know, our capital in the places where we're going to spend time. So it's not like spray it and hope it works. It's really like concentrated. So the number of investments that we're going to make in fund two, which three times the size is going to be the exact same number of companies. So um, that's how we've gained focus and, and clarity. And I think another really interesting thing that you mentioned just in terms of like that focus and clarity is the the thing that you said, you're like, we can, if a founder wants to like reach out and we really think about the messaging that we're hel- helping, like the message, these different brands, because when you're talk- talking to a CTO versus a CMO, it's all different, right? And having that really specific knowledge about, hey, when you're talking to these type of people in commerce and you're running a cold sales process or whatever you're doing, that's a very unique specific set of knowledge as opposed to, oh, you generally need to know B2B sales and you generally need to know this. So um, I really like how that lines up. And I think like what you're saying, if you guys invest early, you can be massive value add, you have the operating knowledge and those things that you're telling to the founding and the early sales teams, that's gonna be really high value, high leverage without um, a whole bunch of you know wasted effort on your 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 behalf. Um, so as, as Ramon mentioned, as we're kind of wrapping up here, last question I had um, for you is because you're so intimately involved in the space is what are some of your parting thoughts just on the general direction of commerce in the future. I know right now it seems like, you know, we're we're in this era where everything's built on Shopify. You've got a bunch of different tools that plug into the ecosystem. Is this something that you expect to, uh, you know, continue and accelerate? Is there any other different forms of commerce you see emerging? Like, how do you just see the whole uh, commerce uh, industry evolving over, call it the next, you know, five, 10 years? So I think that um, you have to look at, at the consumer journey and understand where the improvements can be made. So acquisition of new customers is in a terrible state right now. So there's a lot of companies that we're looking at that makes that better. So we, we've made an early, we've made three investments in a company called Disco that attacks that. And I think that is going to be, it already is an amazing company. The things that are on the roadmap is going to be, very significant. So there's other companies that we're looking at in that space. There's a a company that um, just announced their seed financing out of Miami, Abe's company called Bounty, which is this really awesome TikTok loyalty program that helps acquisition. So all sorts of things on the the opening funnel side. Um, The middle, the actual middle part, the experience We are spending a lot of time on how can you raise conversion rate, how can you decrease abandonment rate, because if you can't spend the money on acquiring customers, you got to do better with the ones that you 
that are there. So there's this company out of Israel that we just invested in, which I think is going to be massive. It's called WebEyes. They're, they, they're essentially a customer perf, uh, experience perfection platform. They literally show you a dashboard of how much money you lost today or week or month because of abandoned carts, login problems, payment problems, out of stock, search results of zero, JavaScript issues. Like, like the dashboard, it, like you see this and like any D2C brand that sees WebEyes, they're like an immediate close because they clean up those issues and they get like 10% revenue bump immediately. So there's a lot of companies that are centered in on that. Then the other place that I'm looking at is on the back end. The inventory planning, merchandising, last mile delivery, like, you know, I have a vision that, and it's starting to happen, where a lot of retail stores should be forward deployment centers for much, like, you order something from Everlane on the West Coast, you're going to get it in like five days, and you're used to like, you know, Amazon tomorrow. So there's got to be ways to improve that experience. I know Shopify has made a big acquisition in that space to help that out, um, but that that is, and then the final thing, and a lot of people say they have it and it's not really it, but I have seen the power of like, I don't know if you've seen, what is it called? Um, Dolly 2, you know, the whole like open AI, like, like, like AI is just going to take, like once people take the AI as, as a methodology and put it into merchandising, put it into inventory sales, put like, there's a cool company that's working on using machine learning and AI to create imagery for ads where they create human beings that are beautiful that don't really exist. So you don't have to pay the models any money because they made it. So AI is just going to go through everything. And, you know, what Sam Altman is doing is just like, it's really the future of everything. And like Web3 definitely gets me excited because of what we're doing at Novel. But the AI stuff, it's a shame because a lot of people use it in their marketing language when they're not really AI. But when that shit hits the e-commerce world, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be just game changing for a lot of the brand owners. Well, Brian, we just want to thank you for coming on today. This has been one of our favorite episodes, just getting to bring someone on who's been a master of the industry for, you know, over 20 years now and seen it from the beginning and is still super fired up for, for the future of it. So um, wanted to thank you for coming on. And just before we drop, um, where can our audience or listeners, where can they connect with you guys, with Sugar Capital, with Pop Sugar, any novel, any of your brands and yourself personally, where's the best place to find you online? A Brian with an I at sugarcap.com. Perfect. Thanks, Brian. Sweet. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Bye.